How are you all this morning? All right. All right. Hey, it's fall outside. Did you notice? That means football season is about here. My wife was not so thrilled. She's a, she's the funniest football fan. She, you know, she'll, she'll put on the football jersey and she'll watch like 10 minutes and then she'll go do some different things and then take a nap. So, but she does make some awesome snacks. That's, that's, uh, but anyway, anyway, Hey, so we're journeying through first Samuel and, um, we're coming now to its most famous story. And it's perhaps the only more recognizable story in the Bible is the birth of Jesus. It's David versus Goliath. And this story is embedded. Have you ever noticed how it's embedded in our culture? It is consistently referenced as an inspiration for the underdog or anyone facing insurmountable odds. For example, some years ago, a community in Vermont was debating about a surgery center. And here is how the writers set the stage. In one corner was David, a group of 16 physicians proposing to build it. On the other corner was Goliath, the entire Vermont healthcare establishment opposing it. Another example, and I'm finally glad this is over, the fight last night between Conor McGregor, the MMA champion, taking on the 49-0 Floyd Mayweather in a boxing match that was characterized by some in the sports media as David versus Goliath, since McGregor had never professionally boxed. A third example, famous author Malcolm Gladwell does a TED talk based on his book called David versus Goliath. The book is promoted by uh, saying that Gladwell, quote, looks at the complex and surprising ways the weak can defeat the strong, the small can match up against the giant, and how our goals can make a huge difference in difference in our ultimate sense of success. Is that the point of the story? Is David and Goliath a morally uplifting story to boost the lagging self-esteem of the little guy? Now, no doubt David and Goliath is inspiring. But what I hope to show you today is David versus, versus Goliath is a vivid picture of how a life of faith can translate into courage. The kind of courage that can battle back against the everyday fears that we all face. Here's how I hope to do it. One, I want to outline the story by looking at the bookends. The beginning and the end. Secondly, I want to dig into David's preaching. We remember the action, but this chapter has many more spoken words. One to the soldiers, one to Saul, and the climax to Goliath. And they are incredibly insightful. And they will help us answer our third question, or our third point is, where does real courage come from? And this is what will make the difference in our lives. 
So, we've been prayed for, so let's begin. I think it's page 239 if you use the Bible in front of you. Let's first set the beginning and the end, the bookends of this story. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered together their forces for war. Skip down to verse 2. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He wore a coat of scale armor on his br- of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. And on his legs he wore bronze greaves. And a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod. And his iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. That's obvious. The narrator wants us to see how imposing Goliath is. His weaponry and armor are modern and sophisticated for that era. He is over six cubits, meaning he is more than nine feet tall. Now, some less used manuscripts of the Bible put Goliath at four cubits. If that is the case, it would still make him six foot nine inches, and he would still tower over the Israelites, whose average height was five foot three inches. Either way, he is a giant of a man. His bronze chain mail weighed 125 pounds. The point of his javelin, just the point alone, was 15 pounds. Some of you might have done something like that in your track and field days. You want a javelin to soar through the air, right? With velocity and with accuracy. The tip was 15 pounds. Every day, these two armies line up on opposite sides. They each occupy a piece of high ground bordering the valley. So for either charge or either side to charge unilaterally would expose them to tremendous loss. So... To minimize bloodshed, they resort to an ancient practice called single combat. Under this agreement, each side sends out a champion for a one-on-one fight to death. The winner secures victory for his side, and the other side must come to terms and is subject to the victor. Every day, for 40 days, both sides come out in full battle gear. Every day, Goliath makes his taunt. Who will fight me? His voice alone must have been terrifying as it rang through that valley. Every day, Israel's warriors flee at his mental game. Frankly, it was an old-fashioned form of trash-talking, intimidation, creating fear in your opponent. And for 40 days, every day, morning and night, it worked I had a chance to see the movie. I've been wanting to see it for quite a while. The movie Dunkirk last week. Dunkirk tells a story of 400,000 British soldiers trapped on a beach in France during the Second World War. Blocked by the ocean with the Nazi army surrounding them, they had nowhere to go. 
They were attacked in the air as they stood exposed on the beaches. Their ships were sank as they tried to cross the English Channel. And this Christopher Nolan movie, what it so vividly portrays is the fear, the raw fear that these soldiers felt. And it maybe gives us a little bit of a taste of what these Israelite soldiers were feeling. Into this battle scenario comes David, sent there by his father Jesse with ten cheeses and ten loaves of bread to give to his brothers and to their commander. Now, we met David last week in chapter 16. We learned there that he was anointed by Samuel as just a boy. As just a boy, he was God's chosen king to replace Saul, though his actual coronation was many years away. Later in chapter 16, David comes into contact with Saul as a grown man. They actually become close. But here in chapter 17, what's going on is that the writer goes backwards. And we are introduced to David again as a young shepherd boy. Too young to fight. Too small for armor. A messenger boy who comes into the battle scene. His most deadly weapon, ten cheeses. Okay, I might be scared too of a guy with ten cheeses. What's he up to? Anyway, this back and forth requires a little explanation. It is confusing for us in the West. But we have to remember that the writers of the Bible were not sticklers for chronology as we are. Biblical writers cared less about chronology than they did in putting two pictures side by side in order to make a point. And that's what's happening here. So David, without any background as to what's been going on, enters this scene of Goliath's trash talk and Israel's retreat. But when David hears a taunting, he, he is incensed. He wonders, what is wrong with this picture? How can he speak like this against the God that I know? David responds in a way that makes sense to him. He volunteers to become Israel's champion. He approaches Saul and says, I'll go. And Saul looks at him and says, you're barely wet behind the ears. That's ridiculous. There's no way you can fight Goliath in hand-to-hand combat. Hmm. Notice what Saul's thinking there. And he tries to fit David into his own armor. A terrible irony. A terrible irony since it was Saul who should have gone in the first place. But David tries on the armor and says, ah, this is not me. I don't, I don't want it. And so he, this young boy, only with a sling and five stones as his weapon versus a godless giant fitted with the most technologically advanced weaponry on the face of the earth. Two verses tell us the outcome. Let's look at those now. Verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead 
and he fell on his face to the ground. Okay, now, this was not a kid's slingshot, all right? Uh, Guys, this is not the little slingshot like this that you brought to school in third grade and thought you were clever with it. It's not the same thing. We know from history that slings were used by ancient warriors and the best of them could fly that thing up to 150 miles per hour. One author indicated that the impact of a dense stone at that rate approximated a 45 magnum bullet hitting you. And with practice, a warrior could become deadly accurate. This was an amazing, unpredictable outcome. And when the dormant soldiers of Israel saw the little shepherd boy do the seemingly impossible, they lit up a war cry. They were filled with courage and they surged, it says, forward towards the Philistines in what became an all-out rout. Okay? There's the bookends. The beginning of the story and the conclusion of the story. And in the middle we find these three sermons, all right? Let's take a closer look at each of these. And keep in mind, we are trying to answer the question, how do I find the courage to fight back? To fight back on the battles of everyday living. Okay, the first sermon we find begins in verse 25. This is after Goliath has given his daily dose of trash talking. And all the men of Israel flee. And let's see what happens. Verse 25. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches. One. And will give him his daughter. Two. Make him royalty. And three. Make his father's house free in Israel. No taxes. And David said to the men who stood by him, Hey, could you clarify that again? What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now I want you to note a couple of things here that are in this passage. Two things. One. Notice how he refers to Goliath. He doesn't call him a daunting champion, but rather an uncircumcised Philistine. We've not heard this before in the narrative. Up to this point, he has only been called a champion. Why is this important? Because David recognized immediately that this was more than simply strength against strength. If it's Goliath's javelin versus David's cheeses, it's not much of a battle. But, but, but uncircumcised recognizes Goliath was outside of God's covenant. This is a battle not between two different champions, but between two different gods. The God of Israel versus Dagon. Remember him? The idol that the Philistines prop up in their temple? And notice 
Notice, secondly, in contrast to this, look at how David describes the God of Israel. Notice the adjective that, God, that David gives to describe God. Do you see it there? Go ahead and just, just yell it out. Yeah. He's the living God. What does this mean? Well, plainly it means our God is not dead nor non-existent. But according to one writer here, David is focusing on God's active presence. His power, his authority, his ongoing involvement in history and in his people. David knew God to be alive in his experience. Okay? So that's the first sermon. Put, keep this in the back of your mind. That's the first sermon. Let's go to the second sermon given to Saul, beginning in verse 32. David, of course, was inquiring about Saul's bounty on uh, Goliath, Saul got wind of this, and he sends for David. Verse 32. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I called him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the hand of this, from the paw of the bear and the paw of the lion will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go. All right, go. And the Lord be with you. I'm not sure how enthusiastic that go was. Again, secondly, notice again how he views Goliath. He repeats the description, uncircumcised Philistine. He sees Goliath's taunting as a direct challenge to the supremacy and power of the God of Israel. Is God truly more powerful than the Philistine God made of wood? Of course he is, David reasons. And for a second time, he refers to his God as the living God. David and everybody else are looking at two different realities. Informed by faith, David sees what is obvious to him. It's like the trained biologist looking into the microscope and they're able to identify the, the bacteria easily or the cells easily. Or it's like the, the doctor, you've got a broken bone, they put your x-ray up there and they can see exactly what's going on. Or it's like when you look at the ultrasound of your baby and they can, they can tell directly what's happening. And for us who are not trained, we can't see it. David saw this battle differently because he had a spiritually developed eyesight. You might call it a sixth sense. It was supernatural, but not magical. It was powerful but not shrouded in mystery. Uh, Shamalayas, 
gifted and exceptional uh, boy in his movie called The Sixth Sense. Um, he was gifted. He was exceptional. He saw dead people. <laughs> David's Sixth Sense, though, is inclusive. It's reproducible. And it is available to anyone willing to walk by faith. Now, part of what helps David know God is he knows God as a rescuer, right? Did you pick that up in the story, how important that is? Not only in theory, but in the real conflicts of life, he has witnessed God firsthand come through for him. His confidence is not from a textbook, but it is from experiences that he can smell and feel and taste. He readily attested it was God who delivered him. He did not believe he was lucky to be alive. He was not counting his lucky stars. He perceived those encounters with the lion and the bear, not as random events, but as tests of faith. And when God revealed himself through them, it made his faith all the more solid. Saul knew only ritual. Saul knew only formal religion. His convictions melted under pressure. David's beliefs about God were also forged under a hot fire. But his experiential knowledge of God helped him to endure through pressure. And just like molten steel is poured into a mold to produce something strong and useful, so molten steel has filled out the mold of David's heart. I know my God as a rescuer. It's who he is. Goliath will be just like one of them. Okay? Pretty insightful, right? It's amazing what he communicates to us in these sermons. Let's look at the third and final one. This one is given to Goliath. This is his magnus opus. Verse 45. Then David said to the Philistines, Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the ends of the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into your hand. Now there's parts of this we may not emulate today, okay? But there are some things we can emulate from this. A couple of notes from this third sermon. First, look at the name that David uses. The Lord of hosts. God was first called this at the end of the era of the judges, actually earlier in 1 Samuel. Why this name? Host is the Hebrew word meaning armies. The angelic armies of heaven. And to get the full picture, we need to connect back to the book of Deuteronomy. Because in the book of Deuteronomy, God had commanded Israel's kings to not amass chariots, horses, 
In other words, military weaponry. They were not to trust in chariots and horses and the armies of humanity. This was part of how they were to be different. In calling God the Lord of hosts, David is proclaiming that God is the universal ruler over every force. And he is saying that this is a battle that will not be won in conventional ways, strength against strength. This rather is a battle between two gods. One that is living and can demonstrate his power, and one that is an illusion and has no power. And another observation about this sermon. Did you see how perceptive David is? This astonishes me. Even at a young age, he understands the heart of God. This is why he's called a man after God's own heart. How could he be supremely confident about the outcome? Because he understands God's heart for the world. And this is David's heartbeat. David wants the entire world to know there's a God in Israel. A real God, a living God, a God you can relate to, a God who listens to your heart and hears your prayers and responds to you. Even then, David grasped that God wants the entire world to know about him. Walking by faith turns the lights on for David and allows him to recognize the battle is the Lord's. So, what have we done so far today? We've looked at the bookends of the story, the beginning and the end. We've examined these three sermons to the soldiers, to Saul and to Goliath. And now to our final question, where does real courage come from? By now, it should be plain to us. Real courage comes from knowing God. Real courage comes from knowing God. When facing our own giants, knowing God is the ultimate game changer. How do we get this knowledge? How do we get this knowledge? Well, let me just say first how it doesn't happen. Because in our culture, what our culture seems to suggest, to get this knowledge of God, we need to find a guru on the other side of the world. We need to find some super spiritual, secretive teacher living typically in India or Pakistan. No offense to my friends from those countries. In contrast, David sought after the heart of a God who is happy to reveal himself. Because that is what love does. Love reveals oneself. And David was a seeker of God. He longed for more and he wanted desperately to know him. This is just one example. Psalms 63 verse 1. David wrote this while a fugitive in the desert of Judah. He writes, Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in a parched and weary land where there is no water. John Piper writes that seeking the Lord means seeking his presence. Presence is the common translation of the Hebrew word face. Literally, we are to seek his face. This is a living God. 
the active presence David described. Piper says that God calls us to enjoy continual consciousness of His supreme greatness and beauty and worth. But that's not always our experience, is it? There are seasons we wander away and we neglect our relationship. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, the hymn says. There are other seasons marked by dryness where I try to engage God, but He seems distant. And then I think there may be sometimes limited where God may even hide Himself from us for a little while so that we become more deeply aware of our own emptiness. And that allows us to develop a true appetite and hunger for Him. It's not a divine cat and mouse game. It's His way of loving us and ultimately blessing us. He works in us so that we stop eating Twinkies and Little Debbies and fast food so that we can sit down for real meals. The Bible says, seek His face continually. Pray without ceasing. Rejoice always. First Chronicles twenty two nineteen says, Now seek the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. This is a God-centered life. The Spirit of God empowers us to set our mind on Him. In the past couple of years, we've talked a lot about listening prayer. And it's been good. For many of us, this has helped us connect with God on a deeper level and perhaps a little more of an, a, an emotional level. But we must not forget that seeking God remains an active, conscious choice on our part. We cannot be passive about this. Seeking God is not automatic. It doesn't happen naturally without the Spirit prompting us and us responding. Left to our own, we default to passivity and living a self-centered life. This also means avoiding the sins that dull us and blind us spiritually. It means bringing balance to even the good things in our life. For over time, if good things get out of balance, they too can bring dullness, dullness and make us spiritually insensitive. You can pray prayers without seeking His presence. You can read the Bible without seeking His face. You can come to church. You can go to small group without seeking God. We pray, we read, we engage in the spiritual disciplines so we can learn to seek His presence and practice His presence all day long. The outstanding, oft-repeated premise of the Bible from old to new is don't be afraid for, go ahead and just say it. Don't be afraid for, I am with you. You're never alone. To see differently, we must look beyond the natural world and live by faith. This means that the space that fills the blackness of a starless night or even the invisible air of this room is not empty space, but rather it is filled with the presence of God. 
One writer said it this way, giving us an excellent picture. He pointed out that the air our body requires, the oxygen our body needs, it surrounds us, it envelops us on every hand. To receive it, we need only to breathe. Likewise, the air which our souls need also envelops us, all of us, at all times, on all sides. God is round about us in Christ on every hand with his many-sided and all-sufficient grace. All we need to do is open our hearts. This is what David did. Knowing God was the source of his courage. And as he acted on that knowledge, as he obeyed God, God became real in his experience. Those beliefs turned to convictions that did not melt under pressure. With experiential knowledge of God, fear did not paralyze him most times. Okay, let me give you one very practical thing you can do this week. This is a spiritual practice that has helped me at different seasons. I'd like to urge you to take a few quiet moments at the end of each day, turn the TV off earlier, and replay in your head, do some inventory, ask yourself, where did I experience the presence of God today? As you think about the people you talked to, the places that you went, the things that you did, Where did I experience God's presence? Where did I feel close to Him? Was it through a a prayer or through reading the Bible? Or it may have been in connection with another person? Or a song that you heard? Or engaging uh, creation? Or even through something in popular culture? A book you were reading or a movie you saw? God can surprise you in the places and the ways that He speaks to you. God wants to develop your spiritual hearing and your spiritual eyesight. Where is God speaking to me? Where is he drawing close to me? And then on the other side, ask, where today did the presence of God seem absent? Are there places where I quenched his spirit? I just went about my life and forgot him completely. Think about where the places, the conversations, maybe the conflicts where it's obvious that God, you you were not connected to him in that moment. You know, one little anecdote here personally is that, uh, like many of you fathers um, uh, uh, or others, I I try to lead spiritually in my home and my family. And one one of the just simple ways I do that is to lead out in prayer at our dinner we try to have dinner as many nights as we can. And uh, I lead out in that prayer. It's a, a prayer that I pray verbally. I, I, I pray it aloud. And there are many times where that prayer feels cordial. It feels sterile. It feels lifeless. And I ask myself, why? And the answer comes back plainly to me. It's because you haven't talked to me all day long. You talked to me this morning, but then I've not connected with you since that time. And that's why I feel like a stranger to you. God wants to commune with us all day long. Okay, so one simple thing you can do. All right?
But before we leave this morning, we must look at one final thing, one final observation, because this is the most important of all. This is what will give you immense courage. And let me start, let me phrase it by asking you a question. In this story, what is Israel's greatest threat? Well, you say that's obvious. The greatest threat was Goliath. Well, if that's your answer, that's actually the wrong answer. Their greatest threat was the unbelief in their own hearts. This is what threatens their own existence more than Goliath. They had a history of God coming through for them and winning battles. They were called to only be strong and courageous despite their feelings. But they did not genuinely seek God. They did not believe God. Our greatest threat, your greatest threat, is not some enemy out there. But it is the unbelief that lies in our hearts. We said in the beginning, this is not primarily a moral story about the little guy. And that is true because when we write ourselves into this story, if we're honest, left to ourselves, we're not like David, are we? Who are we like? Left to ourselves. If we write ourselves into the story, who are we like? Yeah, we're, we're like the soldiers who every day cower in fear. Oh, we've learned, many of us, we've learned the look of a tough guy. But below the surface, there are fears that paralyze us and fears that we want to keep secret. Let's use our imagination for a moment and let's write ourselves into this story. And I, I pulled this from one of my resources this week. I thought it was excellent. Imagine you are one of the Israelite soldiers sitting on the hillside above the valley of Elah. For 40 days, Goliath has been coming out each morning and evening to taunt you. And you absorb it. You justify your inaction. You tamper down your shame. And you feel powerless to do anything. The situation feels hopeless and daily grows worse. Then David comes forward and you naturally expect the worst. By the way, who in his right mind let this kid out there anyway, you wonder? It's like some form of abuse. And you see Goliath posturing and laughing and you brace yourself for the oncoming carnage. You wonder, how did we get to this place anyway? Then you see David wind up his sling. And in a few seconds of confused and blurry images, you see the giant of a man tumble forward. David, act quickly before he recovers. You think in a moment of excitement, you dare not taste. Can this be happening, you wonder? But when you see the jeering enemy silenced and begin to run, you and your fellow soldiers look at one another in disbelief and then surge forward with a cry of praise and joy and you win an unbelievable battle. We're still talking about it today. In the same way as it were, we stand on a hillside looking back through history. And down in the valley, we see our Jesus. 
And he too is entering a battle. But he is armed only with a beam of wood strapped to his shoulders. And we think, like David, he's too small. He's too weak. He's up against the most powerful government in the world. We wonder and lose hope at the smallness of his weapons. For like David, he has emptied himself of the power and of the weapons that men trust in. It is as if Jesus said, you come against me with the ways of the world. Manipulation and coercion and injustice with lies and threats with the law of sin and death. But I come to you in the name of my Father with justice and righteousness and love and mercy. In verse 4 and 23, if you looked at those verses, Goliath is described as a champion. That word literally means the man of the between. The man of the between. Goliath stands between the Philistines and Israel. Goliath is their true representative. He is the man in between. David becomes Israel's champion. He is their representative, the man in between. And while David gives us a picture of this, David cannot ultimately defeat our worst enemies. He can't defeat sin and death because he has his own sins to worry about. Even in this passage, we get a hint of the pride that will uh, create tremendous damage in David's life in the future. We need a rescuer, but we need one beyond David. Because our greatest enemies, friends, and I know that these are devastating things. I don't say this callously. Our greatest enemies are not cancer. It is not losing our job. It's not a failed marriage or your kids losing their faith. The things that make up for us are everyday fears. They are the fears that are only the fruit of our greatest enemy. They are the fears that are the fruit of our greatest enemy. Our greatest enemy is sin. Our greatest enemy is death. And our greatest enemy is Satan who wants to drag you into judgment and doom and hell. You and I are sitting on those beaches of Dunkirk. That's the situation we must realize. You and I are sitting on the beaches, and we are completely and totally exposed. And the enemy is surrounding us and is picking us off. That is a situation that you are in. That's a situation sin and death has put us in. You will never, ever appreciate the gospel until you grasp that truth. That our sins and our sinful nature is offensive to a holy God. We desperately needed a rescuer. There was no other way out. None. Zero. Tim Chester says this. He says, in the same way on the cross, Jesus was our champion, our man of the in-between. 
He stood between us and judgment, between us and death. He bore the full force of the judgment of God. By his stripes we are healed. By his stripes we are healed. And by God raising him from the dead, God the Father defeated our greatest enemy and he buried our greatest fear. Jesus defeated what no political power could ever attain. Victory over death. Victory over sin and victory over Satan. Our greatest enemy is done. Eliminated. The kingdom of God has broken in. Nothing else we experience can ultimately take you or me down. Brothers, you can be like the godly man in Psalm 112. He's described, here's how he's described. He has no fear of bad news. How can that be? This is why. Sisters, you can be like the godly woman described in Proverbs 31, who it says she smiles at the future. You see, all of us were once cowering soldiers, but once we see our champion secure the victory, then we can surge forward into battle with a newfound courage because he's won the victory for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you accomplished through Christ. And I pray that you'd help us to more certainly and more fully understand it and proclaim it and grasp it. Father, I ask in Jesus' name, even as we sing these final songs, that they would be to us like those men surging forward, claiming their victory, embracing their victory, believing the victory that they have, that's now been won by our champion. May our songs boldly proclaim and our voices boldly proclaim what we have secured through Christ. And Father, for the friend this morning who is not connected to you, who is a stranger to whom you are a stranger, I pray that you would speak to their heart this morning and you would resurrect them. They would become alive in you as your spirit speaks to them. And draws them to you. Father, we give you first our hearts in response to your word. We want to give you the best of our resources. We want to give you our prayers, our highest dreams and aspirations. As we sing, as we pray, and as we worship and enter in God to the life of faith. We pray all this through the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen.